Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. The most successful entertainment product of all time is Grand Theft Auto V, which is quite considerable when you're pitting it against Star Wars or Marvel. So this really highlights how video games have become something completely and utterly normal and mainstream, whereas 50 years back they were novelty, they were dismissed, and they were seen as very unusual and frivolous. Hello and welcome once again to Patented, a podcast all about the history of inventions. From History Hit, for all your history needs. I'm Dallas Campbell. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for your company. In this episode, I'm going to be talking about the invention and the evolution of video games. We're going to be tracking the 50-year history of video games and all the innovations that took place along the way. Why, for example, are the roots of gaming to be found in universities and laboratories? What technology helped gaming spread and grow throughout the world? And how do you explain the console wars, Nintendo versus Sega of the 1990s? I'm going to be covering all that on today's show with my special guest, John Willis, who's the director of the Centre of American Studies at the University of Kent and also the author of Gamer Nation, Video Games and American Culture. So limber up those gamer thumbs. Hope you enjoy the show. Hey, John, welcome to the show. Welcome to Patented. A great pleasure to have you with us. And I've got to say, T-shirt envy, just for our listeners, John is wearing an Asteroids T-shirt. In the pantheon of video games, Asteroids for me was always the one. Well, that's good to know, Alison. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, it's one of a range of retro <laughs> and nostalgia video game T-shirts that you can get these days, isn't it? Yeah, that's the thing. I think for me, when I think of video games, I tend to... 
because I'm not a massive gamer, but I always tend to go down the, the, the sort of nostalgic route because I suppose, well, video games have been around for sort of 50 years. So my life, I'm giving my age away. I'm only 30, really. Um, video games, <laughs> I was there from the beginning till, till now. And so when I was playing video games, it was BBC Micro. It was Asteroids and it was Horace Goes Skiing on the, on the ZX Spectrum. Yes, I'm probably in that age group as well. And for me too, maybe we were the first generation to grow up with video games and computer games. And so they had a kind of formative impact on our lives. And we remember them with great nostalgia today. And yeah, Horace Goes Skiing, it was a game I had too. I think if you showed it to anybody today, they would be quite shocked at its simulation of skiing. <laughs> but it was great fun, definitely. It was. It's funny because I actually showed some Horace Goes Skiing footage to my daughter and she was horrified. But also it was such a weird game. Like who came up with that? Because it wasn't just skiing around some slalom poles. You had to cross a road. You had to cross a busy road, not get run over and then go skiing. It was just like, who came up with that? It's not necessarily the natural simulation of skiing, <laughs> is it? Or hopefully it would be quite a dangerous or extreme sport if we had that. When I was a kid, I remember the very first time I ever played an arcade game, which was a Space Invaders game in a cafe, like a really cheap old cafe in Newcastle upon Tyne in the bus station next to Eldon Square. And me and my friend Adrian, we went down with a bag full of 10ps. It was the first time we'd seen an arcade game. This must be late 70s, something like that. It was sort of life-changing because up to then, arcades had been pinball machines and that was it and then suddenly you had these video games and it was like wow look at this space invaders yeah definitely for me too in that i have one of my earliest memories is going into a local fish and chip shop a very english reference point while you waited for fish and chips there were two arcade machines there that you would play i think it was breakout was one of them an early bat and ball game and that was a normal thing for you to do that you would entertain yourself while playing a video game waiting for something else to happen as you say they were kind of infiltrating and taking up all kinds of commercial spaces, recreational spaces at that time, not just dedicated arcades, but yeah, you might find them in shopping malls, you might find them in normal regular shops. So yeah, it's very interesting change that was going on at that time. God, we got so much to talk about. There's so much cultural, interesting stuff we can talk around video games. But let's start right at the beginning because I mean, conventional history lore, L-O-R-E, always cites the Atari game Pong, the famous tennis game, which most people will be able to visualize as the first video game. But I'm always a bit skeptical of when people say, hey, this was the first thing ever. Because there generally isn't. There's generally a whole other backstory to that about how that happened. What was the very first time anyone had played some sort of game on a video? It must be before Pong, I'm guessing. Yeah, you're right, definitely. I think dating what the first computer game was, you've got that complexity of, you know, these things were being programmed as fun divergences from serious uses in places such as universities, the military industrial complex or at military institutions and they weren't commercial. So in that way, it's quite hard to say, you know, what was the very first, what we might call normal computer game. Certainly Pong is a popular example because it's the first big commercial hit and that's 1972. But prior to that time, there's a range of other computer games that you might cite as far earlier and were important too. Do you have an example of like, the, in the sort of prehistory of video games, like what 
how far back can we go? Can we go back to the last universal common ancestor, as it were, the genesis? Is there a kind of like, it was on this day that such and such flicked a switch and a pixel moved across a screen? I don't know. Yeah, there are a few examples. One of the complexities is when does it become a digital game? When does it look like a real video game as opposed to, say, moving a dot on screen or almost like a simulation of chess? So there are lots of complexities there, but two early examples that do crop up at Brookhaven National Laboratory in the United States, William Higginbotham. He was a Manhattan Project scientist, so he'd actually worked on timing circuits for the first atomic bomb. This individual was working at National Laboratory at Brookhaven, and he designed an early game, we're talking 1950s, 1958, called Tennis for Two. We don't really need much explanation as to what that game is about, but it was basically putting a sport on screen, which I think is quite interesting, the idea of putting a sport that we all know onto screen that you could play. And that was basically a ball on screen controlled by purpose aluminium controllers. And it was designed to be shown at an annual public event. So basically people would look and see a little bit at what Brookhaven was doing. You know, it's obviously not a public facility and they would use that one day event to advertise American science to the public and to promote themselves. And so he designed that game to do that in 1958. And apparently it was such a hit that it was repeated on another visit day. So that's one of the earliest examples. That's amazing. Okay, so here's a guy who's working on the Manhattan Project. Actually, it's got that kind of, it does have that perfect kind of Cold War background story. Anyone who's, who's seen War Games, the, the movie War Games from the 80s, which is all about a video game, essentially, that gets conflated with real-world nuclear annihilation. So he's working on the Manhattan Project and just in his lunch break, whilst not designing atomic bombs, designs a video game. Do we know much about him? Like, why was he doing that when he was designing timers for blowing things up? I should say he was doing the Manhattan Project earlier, so he wasn't doing it exactly the same time. That would have been quite an interesting, maybe a kind of relief from the seriousness of what else he was up to. And actually, Manhattan Project scientists did really struggle with the ethical implications of their work and struggled to escape from it. So he might be one of many scientists at that time that was struggling with that. But no, it was just a way of promoting what laboratories can do, suggesting that in a sense, there's a fun side to serious technology, a soft side. And it was also about suggesting what computers can do or early computers. You know, this is the very first time in 1958, we get the first computer chip designed by Jack Kelby. And we don't really start getting modern computers until the 1960s and IBM starts pushing forward some designs in that period. So this is right at the very beginning and it's a very elementary concept what he does there. The actual computer he uses is a kind of analog and physical computer rather than digital. So this is right at the beginning. There is another example that's often cited which is also happens within this kind of broader world, which is uh, Massachusetts Institute of Technology. So university campus, we have in 1962, a game called Space War, where a number of research assistants work on a game that features two spaceships in a dogfight. And that's a lot more like how we see an early computer game, isn't it? And that uses a PDP-1 computer, and it's about to showcasing what a computer can do. And again, it has, as you were saying, a kind of Cold War ideas behind it because we have 
two spaceships caught in a dogfight. This could easily be the Soviet Union versus the United States in a future war. And this is very much within that period of the Cold War. So they certainly have a military-industrial complex beginning, in the United States at least, yeah. It's quite interesting, isn't it, that suddenly you get a new technology, this idea of computers, and it's not long before we start to want to play games on it. Like, what does that say about the human instinct to kind of muck about and play games? It's like, well, we're meant to be doing serious university work or blowing up other countries or military stuff, but actually... What humans like to do is goof around. Definitely. I totally agree with that because I think it's actually something that we underestimate the power of play and how we're drawn to play. This is not a new thing. This is part of animal society prior to human society. All creatures, including ourselves, naturally want to play. If you have a cat or dog, you see that every day or a child. And it's something that history of play has been a little bit repressed or pushed to the sidelines. And that's also how we think about video games, that maybe they're less important to us because they're frivolous or they're for play. But actually, they have a powerful impact on our lives. And it's important to understand that history of play in a broader way and also how video games enhance our lives. Yeah, definitely. It's interesting as well, you said how the types of games that we play, you have this lovely kind of mirroring effect from society and what our concerns are at the time. So you mentioned these early games come from military backgrounds and we're playing these combative games, things like Space Wars in the 1960s. And of course, we're thinking about space and we're thinking about wars. Is that fair enough? Are they a mirror to our moral panics that we might be having at the time politically and historically and sociologically? Yeah, I think video games do mirror our lives and mirror our concerns and our anxieties, as well as our pleasures and what we want from life. You know, there are numerous examples, especially in the early period, where you can see video games not providing pure escapism, but actually commenting upon social issues. A popular one from around the time you were playing Space Invaders is Missile Command by Atari. That game projects a war of ICBM missiles raining down on cities. Whether the player always gets that, that's a difficult matter when you're playing a game over a couple of minutes and the graphics are not very realistic. But Missile Command was designed to show a nuclear war. And it was a really intriguing concept whereby in the original plans for the game, they suggested they were ship Missile Command across arcades in the US and around the world. And the local places would program their cities into the game. So you would be defending your own cities. And also, more disturbingly, you could never win at that game. The best you could do would be lasting five or 10 minutes defending your city. And nuclear annihilation was an inevitability. You couldn't avoid it. And so it was actually making intriguing commentary on the fatalism regarding nuclear war in the 1980s, that if it ever happened, even if you did your best, even if you were the best player or hero, you couldn't stop it. I love that. Certainly as a child of the 80s, that was the main concern, wasn't it? Well, that and quicksand. We were always terrified about quicksand for some reason. The other great thing, we mentioned space invaders and this early idea, space wars, and you've got an asteroids t-shirt on. That's the other thing we seem to be obsessed about. There were lots of space games. I remember in the late 70s, early 80s, things like Galaxian and all that kind of stuff. So I don't know, maybe alien invasions was high on our list of priorities at the time. Yeah, you're dead on that. It was a period, the late 70s, early 80s, 
this was the time in the United States where the Western became the space Western. The old ideas, the frontier, had decidedly moved on to a space frontier. We had Star Wars released in 1977, and that was a huge hit and emulated not just on cinema, but in terms of everything else. And video games were definitely catching on to this idea of space as an exciting and dangerous frontier of entertainment for us to explore. We'll be back after this short break. Hi there, I'm Kate Lister, sex historian and author, and I am the host of Betwixt the Sheets, the history of sex, scandal and society, a new podcast from History Hit. Join me as I root around the topics which have been skipped over in your school history lessons. Everything from the history of swearing to pubic hair, satanic panic, cults, there is nothing off limits. We'll be bed hopping around different time periods, from ancient civilizations to the Middle Ages to Renaissance and early modern, right up to now. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Let's go back to 1972. End of Apollo. Last Apollo mission, 1972. Why was Pong, which is the tennis game everyone knows, the Atari one, why was that so popular? Why do we always cite that as the kind of great breakthrough? What was going on there? On a very basic level, it was that it was basic, that it was simple. Nolan Bushnell, who helped create Pong, he founded Atari too. And he tried an earlier game called Computer Space, released in 1971. So just 12 months prior, he'd invested considerable time in creating an arcade game based around a copy really of Space War and he'd manufactured this into a beautiful future looking fiberglass shell so it looks straight out of Star Wars prior to Star Wars and it even had product placement so he got it in the movie Soylent Green in that period so a sci-fi movie featured his arcade machine great example of product placement but the game itself was incredibly complex for the public to understand. He 
positioned it in a range of US bars and people probably because they taken on a fair amount of alcohol, they had absolutely no clue what was going on on screen. And the general idea was that this was too complex a game for the audience to understand, you know, what a video game is. It's also a really interesting example because he took it to the National Amusement Exposition Show where people market all their entertainment products. And the general idea was that this could never, ever sell, that a video game would never do any business and that pinball machines would always outperform it. So you have this real sense of, oh, this is not going as history should play out. This is not working very well. And instead, he tries again with an associate and they go basic. They go with a very cheap product. They go with a tennis game because he'd also seen tennis for two. And they retry this idea of a video game for the arcade around a sport and everybody knows how to play tennis. They don't need any instructions, doesn't need too much technological sophistication. And it also brings in people for a novelty, you know, something exciting to try. And it takes off in huge numbers. And also an ingredient to that success is that it's cloned and copied. Unfortunately for them, but Pong becomes something, or tennis, becomes something that you see everywhere. It becomes a huge seller. It's the family toy, the novelty item to take home with you for a few years, actually. So it does business throughout the 70s. On that, you mentioned putting arcades into bars. What's the distinction between like an Atari thing you'd plug into your television at home to play Pong in 1972 and the invention of a, like a box that sits in a corner of a bar and you put a quarter in or 10p? How did all that technology happen? They're actually, in reality, they're fairly similar in time frame. Pong is released first as an arcade machine, but within a few years, they do purpose-built home versions of it. We also have in the 70s, the Magnavox Odyssey, which we can talk about, which is the world's first I love that. home console. I've never heard of it, the Magnavox Odyssey. I always thought it was the Atari was the first, but no, it's the Magnavox Odyssey. So tell us about that. What games did it have and what did it look like? It was, again, very futuristic looking in a quite distinctive way. It was released in 1972. It was designed by Ralph Baer, who'd had this idea of how can we make television more exciting, if that's possible? How can we make television play for us? How could we interact with it? This was a very radical idea. People had embraced television into their lives in the 50s and 60s, but the most interactive it got was pressing a remote control button. You know, what more could you do with this dominant feature in our lives? And Ralph Baer, who's described as the father of video games, he worked up this idea of how can we transform the television into something more? And and he came up with this idea of almost like a game box, very similar to a modern console. It was different in a number of ways. So that one of the first things is that you would get actually paper and other stuff with it to use with the console. So when you bought it, you would get overlays to put across your television. You'd get board game elements. So you had some dice, poker chips, paper money. So it's almost like a transitional device between old-fashioned board games and what we know as digital gaming. It was a very rudimentary, so it had basic technology. Only, I think, three dots 
could be moved on your television screen. And I think one line could move on it. So this is very basic. This is not GTA here. There was an educational game, which I think I probably, this is bad as I'm an American historian, but I'd maybe struggle with, whereby you had to name all the 50 states in the game. So you'd basically educational type games board games. That was what it did. And one very interesting thing is they didn't know what to call it. I mean, they came up obviously with an amazing name, but how do you describe what this item is in a basic fashion? So at that time, video game wasn't a term. Instead, they suggested in advertising, it was an electronic game simulator, a closed circuit electronic playground, and an electronic game of the future. So they didn't have the language of video games in 1972. So it's really intriguing how they were struggling to know how to market their project and what to call them. It's interesting how, you know, the dominant technology at the time, you say a television, that becomes the sort of baseline of the new thing, this idea of video games and being able to control pixels on a screen. As we kind of move through the 70s into the 80s and these home consoles on television are taking off, we start to get into other things, this idea of LCD screens and handheld thing. So for me, I remember the clamshell Donkey Kong of the early 80s, and that was absolutely radical. I had a Pac-Man game, again, which didn't rely on the television screen. Suddenly you had small screens, which used kind of diodes and, and LCD. Is there a sort of genesis of those of the, 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 that have moved? I mean, obviously the television video games didn't go away, but there was this kind of offshoot. Yeah, this is all happening within the same few years. In the 1970s, we start getting digital watches and pocket calculators and almost trying to work out how we could play a game with a pocket calculator. So even with what are meant to be very serious items, we still want to play with those things. We want to subvert them. We want to be deviant. You start getting early handheld machines in the 70s even more basic than things like the Atari VCS that you can take home. You don't have to therefore commit to the high cost of a console. You can have something a lot cheaper. They're part of the commercial electronics business, Mattel Electronics, companies that have long histories and are looking for new products. They recognize that they can start moving into video game territory. Companies that manufacture pinball machines start deciding, oh, we can move into video games. So they're that whole part of that industry makes a shift into digital terrain. And we also, the one you're mentioning there, Donkey Kong, which I also had too, and was one of my favorites, that's Nintendo's Game & Watch series, which is a very professionally made, well-produced item of the 1980s. If you've still got your machine, it's probably worth a fortune now. They're very pretty and nostalgia pieces now today. But you can see also how they follow on from things like the digital clock and also the watch, because at the same time, they have the date on them, the time, an alarm, and they're all interacting with each other. So I think sometimes we think of video games as isolated from the rest of technology or society, but instead we can see how they're very much caught within that matrix. We've talked a lot about um, the, the sort of origins coming from America as well. Are we starting to see a shift towards Japan with games like Donkey Kong and, 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 and so I suppose electronics generally in the, in the mid-70s? Yes. What happens is 
Atari, which produced the VCS, which is the iconic design from the late 70s and early 80s, which has the famous wood veneer cover to it that matches beautifully with period televisions and really highlights how the two are working in symbiosis. The Atari has its high points in the early 1980s and people are playing on it things like Space Invaders and it's hugely successful, but it goes through a crash in the early 80s. So in 1983, we have a video game crash, which is caused by a number of things. The Atari has flooded the market with product, creating a huge surplus. There's quite a few poor quality games at that time. And also the life cycle of that machine. It was six years old, around six years old at that point. So it wasn't cutting edge anymore. There's a crash in the market. A staggering amount of revenue is lost. In the United States, 3.2 billion is being made of video games in 1983. And it drops apparently to just 100 billion in 1985. So a complete collapse in the market and as you know, E.T. is one of the famous examples. There are stories of thousands of cartridges being buried in the New Mexico desert. Hey, you know what? That's an archaeology project now. I want to go out and see if I can find those lost E.T. cartridges in the desert. Archaeologists will find these and wonder about them in years to come. Sorry, I interrupted you. Tell us about the crash. So we've got, we've got, was there a, the crash happened for the, these reasons. Was there a, a renaissance or what was the renaissance that, that kickstarted the industry again? I think a reset or a pause certainly happens where we get a sense of a little bit of a disinterest around video games at that time. There's still some element of moral panic over what video games do to our youths and their disturbing effects. You can understand that. With all new technologies, we get these moral panics. And certainly in that time, it was also the time of the video nasty. And you had the Mary Whitehouse, who was this great campaigner to stop violence on television. I suppose video games were, forget about things like Donkey Kong, but the first kind of shoot 'em ups things like Doom, well, I suppose we're jumping ahead to the 90s. But there was an increasingly violent element to them, I guess. Yeah, I think it goes through a series of waves of moral panic, often based around the titles that you suggest. You know, Doom, there was a wave of moral panic about Mortal Kombat. In the earlier period, we get maybe the first moral panic around a game in 1975 called Death Race. By the title, it's not, not sounding very optimistic, whereby you drive over what are meant to be gremlins on the road as your aim. They look very close to human figures because at that time, the graphics are so bad, you would know the difference between a gremlin and a human figure. You know, people have concerns over what these video games are doing because in a sense, you know, different to video nasties or cinema. We're interacting with them. We're playing, we're taking a role, we're taking charge in them. We're doing rather than watching. And so I think that's a key element. And in response to that game, we have people accusing games as being very dangerous. The National Safety Council magazine called Family Safety calls games at that time insidious, gross and sick, sick, sick to quote, and TV violence, you know, they're seen as passive, but games making violence more active. I led a sheltered life, you see, because I was, no one said that about horoscope skiing. It's funny as well, I seem to remember the other moral panic was about the addictive nature of games as well, and, and this fear that somehow children weren't going to go outside anymore. We still have the same conversation now about screen time and everything else. I seem to remember the, the, the genesis of our moral panic about screen time coinciding with video games too. Yeah, definitely. I think there is concern over the effect of cinema and television addiction. 
and the video game adds a new dimension to that and intriguingly today it's also a case of people being addicted to watching people play video games actually dear listeners if you want a recommendation of something to watch people watching video games there was a documentary came out about 15 years ago and it's called king of kong and it's a documentary about the world donkey kong championships and it's the most insane documentary and i love it that's my recommendation you must have seen king of kong yes and they do definitely bring that out. They're about immersion, they're about escape, and they're about us performing better and better. And what can we do next? So they can have powerful influences over us. And, and the video game crash, sorry, going back to the video game crash, um, there's senses of moral panic too. But we also get your horoscope skiing reference. We start getting people being really into home computers. The ZX Spectrum, the Commodore 64, the BBC Micro in the UK. These computers are creating a huge market at the time of that crash. So people swap media. They swap from the dedicated entertainment console, such as the VCS, and instead they start playing games on their computers and their parents start buying them because they're educational instead. So we move away from plugging things into television sets to suddenly the emergence of the microcomputer. And I remember buying Spectrums and you just wanted to play games on them. So with that sort of shift in technology we've alluded to there, obviously the big technological leap in the last 20 years is the emergence of online and the digital revolution. So Maybe to finish off, we can just talk about how that has changed video gaming and what we might be looking for in the next 20 years. There are a few points to make. One is that technology, it's a driver here or has certainly been a driver. The inventiveness surrounding these products has been huge. And the shift to three dimensions in video games, you mentioned Doom onwards, that idea of realism becomes huge. So the idea that a game, rather than be abstract like Space Invaders, it can instead be like life is incredibly important. Games, their technology, they have CD memory. The open world concept is huge. So the fact that you can explore a whole new world in the game. We used to have one screen to look at. Instead, you know, you could spend 150 hours on Red Dead Redemption 2 and still not fully explore that world. Games have also become a lot more mainstream, and that's partly thanks to Sony PlayStation making them cool, in a sense, in the 1990s. And through Microsoft Xbox helping us go online or kind of bringing together PCs and gaming and making it all kind of fuse together and also casual gaming mobile technology we've learned that actually we can get bored or want to break occasionally from social media and we're often playing a video game instead on our phone at that time and the reality is is that on some level we're all a nation of gamers. You know, in the United States, for example, 97% of teenagers are playing video games. The most successful entertainment product of all time is Grand Theft Auto V, which is quite considerable when you're pitting it against Star Wars or Marvel. So this really highlights how video games have become something completely and utterly normal and mainstream, whereas 50 years back, they were novelty, they were dismissed, and they were seen as very unusual and frivolous, really. Am I right in thinking that it's going to become more immersive? I mean, I suppose things like virtual reality, which had its origins in the 1990s. I remember the early ridiculous, terrible virtual reality sets in the 1990s. And obviously we're kind of moving into that. Is that the kind of direction of travel more and more sort of virtual? We can be virtual tourists and virtual worlds. Yeah, I think getting rid of controllers, getting rid of the cumbersomeness 
of the technology is really important and key there. In the 1990s, you had a Nintendo Virtual Boy and you'd almost vomit wearing it because you couldn't cope with the motion sickness. Whereas today, things are a lot more subtle, smaller, more advanced. And I think we're heading into, on some levels, whether we like it or not, a more digitized world and a world that will have more virtual reality to it. Ultimately, we might get to the point where can we always differentiate fully between is there really a difference between the real and the virtual? It sounds very Matrix-like, but it's there. We're already there. I mean, our virt- our digital avatar world that we live in, in on social media is, is is exactly that. And I think that shows one of the great potentials of video games and digital society for us to make ourselves, to represent ourselves, to embrace a kind of digital diversity. One of the shames in a way is that video games haven't always assisted that. They've been too caught in older views of society. So I think there's the potential for video games to assist us and also to recognise that they're very much kind of part of our lives and have helped train us to become part of digital society. You know, you and I probably learned through our video games how to interact with computers, how to type, how to use a mouse, how to kind of become part of those digital realms. In a way, video games still continue to immerse us in those progressive elements of life, I think. John, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I'm conscious of time. I'm also conscious I could have this conversation with you all day because it's really interesting. It's not just the technology, but it opens all these areas of society and the way we live generally. And it's a fascinating subject. Huge thank you to you for joining us today and taking us on that little whistle-stop tour of the history of video games. Absolutely fascinating. Come on again and let's talk about something else. I should point out that this episode was prompted by someone on Twitter getting in touch saying, do the history of video games, do the history of video games. So thank you very much to them. And dear listener, if you've got an idea that you want me to explore or a story that you want me to tell in the world of technology invention, get in touch and we'll definitely do it. But John, fantastic to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks, Celeste. Thanks for the opportunity. That's it. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed that. Hope you are feeling nostalgic about whatever video game you used to play in your youth. Or maybe you're a gamer now and you still play video games. I hope you enjoyed that. Hope that's given a little bit of insight into your hobby. Don't forget, if you've enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating. Please leave a review. Please tell all your friends. I would be most grateful. Next up on the next episode, I'm very excited because I'm doing an episode on cryonics, which I always used to call cryogenics, but apparently it's cryonics. And that's that the idea of freezing yourself at the point of death so that down the timeline, at some point when they've developed new medicines or new technologies, they can defrost you and bring you back to life again. It was one of those ideas that was big in the 1980s, one of those you'd read it in Ripley's Believe It or Not types of magazines. And it held, for me, certainly, a slight morbid fascination. Anyway, I get to the bottom of that do join me for that it's an amazing amazing story and a really really great episode so i shall look forward to your company then
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch, download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play, and smart TV platforms. Follow the link in the show notes, or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours of history on there, including a documentary on science in the Middle Ages with Seb Folk, and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race. As a patented listener, you get a special gift if you use the code Patented at the checkout, you get 50% off your first three months. That's patented for 50% off your first three months. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the Apple app.